If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with a winner of this year's Dan David Prize, the prize of which History Extra is a media partner, recognises outstanding scholarship that illuminates the past and seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of history. Today's guest is Dr Tyrone Freeman, Associate Professor at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, IUPUI. Tyrone's research explores philanthropic traditions in African-American communities, asking his readers to rethink what being a philanthropist really means. He spoke to the author, broadcaster and public historian, Helen Carr, who's working with us on this series. Good, Dr Tyrone Freeman, welcome to the podcast, the Dan David Prize in collaboration with BBC History Extra. And congratulations on your incredible success as a named winner of the 2022 Dan David Prize. So this is quite a remarkable achievement and is testament to the importance and unique nature of your research and how you are responsible for having grounded it so firmly within how we understand the past. So before we begin interrogating you on your work, could you please introduce yourself and your role and how and what led you to study Black philanthropy? Well, thank you very much, Helen. Very excited to be here. And you're right, it's it's a tremendous honor to receive this prize, and I'm very excited by it and, and the potential. Um, so very glad to be here with you. My name is Tyrone McKinley Freeman, and I am an associate professor of philanthropic studies at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy in Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, as you said, I, I study philanthropy, um, which we think broadly as the ways in which people give of themselves their resources to help others and to address societal issues. And so um, I, in my work, I place a focus on African-American philanthropy or Black philanthropy in order to look at um, uh, ways that uh, communities of color have use their own generosity to address their needs, uh, to deal with larger issues of injustice, and to pursue liberation uh, from an American context 
uh, very much shaped by the experiences of slavery and Jim Crow segregation and other forms of oppression. Um, Black philanthropy in America has been a powerful force in the ongoing struggle for freedom. And so um, I, I have directed my research to focus on that. Uh, part of it is coming out of my own upbringing. Um, uh, as an African-American male, I grew up in a, a religious family, a family of ministers and first ladies, uh, very active in uh, the Black Baptist Church, which is an important philanthropic institution in the history that I write about. And so I grew up surrounded by this tradition uh, and, and everyday people giving of themselves in many different ways, uh, but never really thought of themselves as philanthropists. They just are doing what they think they should be doing, uh, treating others the way they want to be treated, living out their faith, uh, but they wouldn't call themselves philanthropists. And so that really intrigues me. And so uh, I definitely wanted to connect that to the larger study of philanthropy and investigate what this particular cultural and historical tradition could teach us about gender generosity and how humans interact with each other and provide resources in order, again, to address various issues confronting daily survival and also societal injustices. Going back to the beginning, when you, um, when you began researching Black and African-American philanthropy, you noticed, am I right, that you noticed a, a gap in the discourse around historic philanthropy that omitted Black contributions, which was so against your personal experience and around generosity in black communities, um, you successfully recovered a huge amount of information and experiences. But what was your what was your process in doing so? And and how did you work with the archive available to you? Or often, as the case with uh, with the archive, what, what wasn't available to you? Yeah. Uh, so, so again, looking at the the literature and the the nature of of discourse in the field, the the field that studies philanthropy. Yeah, the the, the presence of people of color, even women, right, uh, very much uh, is marginalized. And so, uh, it was concerning to me because, again, you know, kind of this community, this tradition produced me in many ways, and yet I wasn't finding it in the various literatures and studies that were framing the conversation and, frankly, our knowledge, right, in the ways in which we train people for the field and, and have conversations around it. So, so that was a big gap for me. And so in order to fill that gap, um, it was very interesting. I, um, there's a limited uh, body of research that uh, focused on African-American philanthropy. I'm very grateful to those scholars who did some of that early work. But one of the big things for me was, was going into the literatures and the places and spaces that already centered and valued the Black experience. And, and so that meant Africana studies. Uh, that meant Black women's history. That meant the history of Black education, the history of Black business, where historians have long centered, again, the Black experience in these areas to see what could be learned. Uh, and, and so in Africana studies, for instance, there are many scholars who have written broadly about what I would consider Black philanthropy. But again, they're not using the term necessarily. They're writing about, for instance, Black club women. Uh, they're writing about Black voluntary organizations, civic engagement, fraternal organizations, uh, the civil rights movement, the abolition movement, activism. These are all strains that are a part of the Black philanthropic experience. Um, but, but these scholars, again, don't necessarily frame it as philanthropy. So there was an interesting opportunity that began to emerge for me that uh, making this connections between philanthropic studies, my field from a historical standpoint, and Africana studies, Black women's history, uh, could really bring these fields in conversation in an interesting way so that 
philanthropy scholars can have a broader sense of their subject of interest and be able to look at it through the lens and experiences of people of color. And that scholars who already study people of color, right, could develop a larger sense of philanthropy. Because in many cases, for those scholars, philanthropy is this external force that is enacted upon Black communities uh, because they don't, again, use that framework for understanding how Black people responded or acted themselves. And then that that all, all, all relies upon doing the archival work where you're dealing with a range of, uh, in many cases, absences, silences, uh, reading between the lines, reading against the grain, trying to understand understand um, exactly what is happening and what's going on inside Black voluntary organizations, what's going on from uh, the standpoint of the motivations and interests of individual Black givers, Black philanthropists across time. So there are, there are lots of archival uh, nuances that we can dig into that are pretty fun to engage. Yeah, and you talk about the gaps in the archive and the idea of reading against the grain and and I think gaps in the archive, particularly around black history, are, are really problematic for historians. But, you know, particularly in a period that, that you study the, the age of Jim Crow, I mean, what was the experience of, uh, of black philanthropists during this period? So we're talking late 19th century, an, an age of extreme racial division. How did people work and live uh, and give during such a restrictive period? Yeah, so if we go back to the period right after emancipation uh, from slavery, so um, and into Reconstruction and even after Reconstruction, so we're talking about the 1860s, 1870s. Um, after this period, there is this really this explosion of of the creation of Black voluntary organizations. Uh, again, clubs, literary societies, schools, the church, churches and denominations are expanding. There, there's this very vibrant landscape of Black organizations that uh, were in, in Black communities across America. And, and through these organizations, Black people were asserting citizenship. They were, they were addressing issues of importance to them, speaking to debates of the day, pressing for freedom. They were meeting basic needs, again, providing education for their children, providing social services. And again, when we think about the larger context where uh, obviously Jim Crow is, is in place now and, and the government is enacting against this community, so they turn inward and they use their resources to create these networks and these organizations to meet their own needs. And, and so it's, it's this, this fascinating kind of juxtaposition that in the midst of all this, the racial terror, the racial oppression, they're creating these platforms to meet their daily needs and to survive. And I believe also to express kind of their fundamental human dignity and integrity in the midst of all that. So there, there's these person-to-person practices of giving, looking after each other. As you know, after Reconstruction, uh, after after slavery, there's this great attempt to reunify, to find loved ones who were sold off to different plantations, uh, to get married, to establish families. They were also establishing communities and creating organizational networks, um, giving and providing resources resources to build up those networks was part of that process. So, so much of it was a real sort of, uh, I suppose, a pastoral effort. You mentioned earlier a women's history and black women's history. And so much yes. of the sort of the pastoral care is, does, is associated with women's history. And um, you have particularly focused on um, a lady called Madam C.J. Walker. In fact, she's the subject of your most recent book. Um, her story is fascinating. Can you, can you tell us you know, who was she? And, but importantly, why is her legacy so important? 
Yeah, thank you. So, um, so she was born Sarah Breedlove on a cotton plantation in Delta, Louisiana, in 1867. And her family, her parents, and four siblings had been enslaved, but she was the first freeborn child. Um, and so she quickly becomes orphaned, um, and she's kind of moving around the South under the care of her older sister. Begins working as a washerwoman, marries pretty early in early teens, um, has a child. Then her husband dies, so now she's this kind of teenage widow with a young child. And all all around her, right, um, Jim Crow is beginning to come about. I, you know, I, I tell the story of how she emerges as in the early 20th century as this black entrepreneur who becomes known as America's first self-made female millionaire because she built a beauty culture business that enabled black women to develop their own their own beauty aesthetic in terms of being able to take care of their hair um, and 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 to be able to you know present themselves uh, in, in a in accordance to the way that they wanted to be presented. And so her products were very popular and provide this very strong economic base for her. But, and, and so she was has been looked at by many different scholars, both for her, her, you know, her business, her entrepreneurialism. She's also was a very vocal advocate in the anti-lynching campaign. Um, but usually um, th- there can be some references to gifts that she made, philanthropic gifts that she made, organizations that she supported. But there wasn't a kind of a focused look at that aspect of her legacy. And so what I wanted to do was take her and center the role of philanthropy in her life and use that to recast our understanding of her and provide a window into this larger tradition of Black women's philanthropy. Because again, she's she's born and she lives during this era where there's this tremendous growth in Black organizations. And so basically what I show is that um, philanthropy for her um, did not emerge uh, near the end of life uh, after she had accumulated wealth, uh, which is very much the model that is um, you know, being proliferated during her lifetime with, with people like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and others, these business moguls who accumulate all this wealth and then later become focused on on being strategic about their philanthropy. So she actually begins giving as this poor, orphan, widowed young mother in St. Louis trying to get back on her feet. Um, And she becomes a part of the Black community in St. Louis through a church, uh, St. Paul's African Methodist Episcopal Church, which still exists to this day. Um, And as part of a network of these Black organizations I was talking about, there's a school attached to St. Paul's and an orphanage and other supportive services um, that she becomes a part of that helps her get on her feet and that she begins supporting as well. And so I show how philanthropy unfolds across her lifetime so that as she acquires more resources, she gives more. But it's not something she arrives at later. And I think that provides a window into this community and this culture's practice of giving because there's a sense that you can't wait. You can't kind of wait until some later point because oppression is happening right now. The needs are so vast, uh, the, the 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 suffering is so deep and so ever present that you have to act now to do something. And 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 I show different people in her life who were doing these these things as well. And also, I show how this is not just about money. That I cast a broad sense of what counts as a gift. We're not just talking about financial or monetary resources, but we're talking about the giving of one's time, the giving of one's voice to raise awareness to issues like anti-lynching for her, as well as women's uh, suffrage, uh, the plight of black soldiers during World War One. She was a vocal advocate for them, uh, but also providing education. She opened up a national network of schools again in this Jim Crow context, where 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 education is very political and very. Popular. 
problematic for black people. Uh, and, and so I'm showing just the different ways that this community, this culture views giving uh, and, and does practice giving and generosity on a daily basis rather than, again, waiting until some lump sum builds up over time and then begin distributing it. You very articulately put uh, philanthropy in these communities as a way of being, which I think is really what you've just been saying um, and how that applies to um, Madam C.J. Walker. Um, and it does. would you say that that would apply to others that you've come across during your research, and but also through your own experience? Yes, yes. Uh, I do think uh, it is something that's ever-present. And one of the things I do in the book is I try to show how I, I'm careful in describing Walker as a a, a foremother of, of this kind of, of Black generosity, if you will, but not its creator, that it existed before her. And even she was socialized into it, taught how to do it by the Black women around her, which is interesting because usually our parents teach us to give. And we have a lot of research today about the role of parents in inculcating values of generosity and helping others into their children. But remember, she was an orphan, right? So she doesn't get that benefit, but she becomes surrounded by elder Black women through that church in particular in St. Louis who are doing these things and serve as this model. And so I, I show how that's foundational to the very things that are going on today. Um, in, in the United States, um, there has been kind of an explosion, if you will, of giving circles um, over the past two or three decades, where giving circles are these networks and organizations that are developed where people come together around an issue or an identity. They, they agree upon a sum of money. Uh, you might say, you know, $100 or $1,000. Everybody pays that equal amount into a fund. And then collectively, they make a decision about which organizations or issues to support in the community. Uh, so there, there's lots of, of African-American giving circles all over the country that reflect this history. And in many ways, Madam Walker was a part of networks where she too was pooling resources, paying into funds for burial insurance and social insurance and other parts of the, the Black social safety net that they had to create for themselves because the government wasn't doing it. Um, and even the broader uh, mainstream nonprofit sector in America wasn't uh, doing it with equity. So uh, uh, so very much the things that she was doing 100 years ago speak to to the, the landscape of, of Black giving today in America. So there's just so many connections that, again, understanding her story helps us understand what's going on today. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Lots of scholars have looked at the resistance to slavery, the resistance in Jim Crow. Uh, part of that resistance is the creation of these organizations, the assertion of these, these philanthropic gifts to do something and provide for themselves in the midst of the larger political and social and economic oppression. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I mean, you've written about how black women, they seemingly at the at the grassroots of these philanthropic communities. And I was just wondering why you think that might be, or if that's even correct. Um, is there something about the female experience that you think perhaps lends itself to giving or... Do you think that comes down to sort of historic roles for women? I mean, black women were even behind it. They, they named August as Black Philanthropy Month, and that was a sort of part of a women's movement. So um, I was just wondering what you you think about the role of women within this. Yeah, and this is where I'm deeply indebted to Black women's historians um, who have centered Black women as historical actors. So they have taught me through their scholarship and through mentoring and and conversations about um, uh, understanding this from from the perspective of Black women. And and again, that that situation, that context of having to simultaneously deal with with racism from white America, but also sexism uh, from white America and from their own community creates this uh, unique dynamic for them. And so um, as I engage with Black women's historiography, uh, learning a lot about the ways in which Black women took it upon themselves to create um, these organizations, the, the, the Black Club Women's Movement, for instance, which was part of Madam Walker's era, um, a, an important national network uh, that had local grassroots where Black women were asserting themselves, where they were meeting the social service educational needs in their communities. They were protecting their own dignity, their own womanhood, um, and, and they were challenging the status quo. They were calling for, for, for justice. They were standing up for their own voting rights as well as for the racial uplift of their people. And so, um, Black women have been in this situation and have provided this leadership historically. And again, it's no accident then that you see today at many of these social movements created, founded by, led by Black women, that is their historical role. And their their experience gives them unique insight and, and direct um, uh, uh, experience to bring to these longstanding struggles for equality and, and, and justice. I mean, your work is is also peppered with examples of men and women giving generously despite despite circumstances. And some of these examples, such as James Fortin and Tommy Lafon, um, they bridged. And you mentioned this before, um, and how this can, can sort of this is so intersectional bridge both philanthropy and activism. Um, I mean, can you tell me about that and perhaps how in the wake and duration of even the slave trade, black philanthropy was so powerful and so important for black communities? Yeah, so this is really, really interesting because so W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, the great scholar historian, wrote about the ways in which the family formation, notions of kinship amongst the enslaved was influenced by obviously Western Africa, right? And that there were practices of of, of relating to others, of adoption, of, of ex- having a notion of a, of a larger family than the, the ones you're naturally are b- related to by blood. And that carries over onto the plantation. Obviously, families are dispersed, you know, uh, through the slave trade. And so the, the, the local context on the plantation becomes a notion of family. Uh, 
Um, and so understanding those relational dynamics, I think, is important for this. But even as you have people uh, being enslaved, you also have free Black communities. Uh, there's a lot of scholarship about, again, the voluntary organizations of free in, in free Black communities, the ways in which they were participating in abolition and other things that were happening during this era uh, that speak to this tradition. And so some of the people you you, you named and that I've written about before kind of have some of this dynamic. James Fortin was a sailmaker out of, out of the Philadelphia area, very active in abolition. Um, you know, and so again, I, this this notion that philanthropy is a, a white phenomenon or a wealthy phenomenon um, gets dispelled and that it really is part of our common collective human heritage. Um, and I think if you could say, if, if enslaved people can be generous, right, that, that that says something very powerful. One of the things I came across, there's an Irish historian who's written about um, a, uh, a, a Black church in Richmond, Virginia in 1847, which donated money to Ireland for the potato famine. And so there's there's interesting dynamics here. That's one thing that I want to follow up in next in the next project and just understanding again these ways of sharing what you have to address the needs of others and to pursue justice that have been fundamental. And so when we take this view, then we can look at um, again the, the abolition, the ending of slavery, uh, the, the on the long civil rights movement, as as historians like to talk about, that these are part of this larger philanthropic history, be, not only because because of the resources that are needed to do it, but also because that these movements have pulled America into a better version of itself and more deeply into its promise, which is supposed to be, you know, equality, freedom, and justice for all. And so I think there's that, that's very much a gift in many ways, if you want to think about it in those terms. And so to show Black people using what they have to try to address these their own needs and to make the larger world better is, is a powerful part of this philanthropic story that I'm, you know, working to try to try to fill as our, our other scholars are interested in this area too. So how has black philanthropy differed to, I think you describe it as white paternal philanthropy? Um, and this is particularly clear in your in your research uh, in regard to education. Yeah. So one, so one of the things um, I show, you know, in, in Madam Walker's story is that she supported many black schools um, in America and she strived to build uh, schools in Africa. Um, but as a part of the ways in which she gave to support these schools, it's very interesting because she relates to the principals or the heads of these schools very differently than uh, the other um, leading white philanthropists of this era. There's a lot of historians have done a lot of scholarship on, you know, the, the General Education Board was one of Rockefeller's philanthropy, um, philanthropies, uh, Carnegie, um, the Slater Fund, all these different funds that were uh, up and running the end of the, 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 the 19th century and into the 20th century that were doing things in black education. The political dance there, the dynamics there, the, the control over curriculum, the control over these institutions, the expectations and demands placed upon these, these, these uh, you know, uh, struggling black institutions in order to draw down the support uh, was a real source of tension and challenge. Um, you know, and, and, and so, but Madam Walker's relating to them very differently. She's not um, asserting the same ty types of control over over boards or, or, or curriculum. You know, she, she does offer uh, black schools the opportunity to um, uh, offer her curriculum in beauty culture uh, to try to develop a, a black workforce of, of, of beauty sales agents and expand that 
that business and she wants to to offer them an opportunity to, to split some profits that might come and as a result of students who come. But we don't see this kind of fundamentally wrangling on what is the nature of Black education and what should Black people be educated for? Should they be educated to, to serve the agricultural uh, economy that is very much on the wane? Should they be, you know, elevated to citizenship? But, but, but Walker is not, not doing those kinds of dances with her grantees, if you will, or her supporters. And so, again, I think it, it shows a fundamentally different relationship that goes back to her being a Black woman who was denied an education by the larger, you know, systems of, of first slavery and then, then Jim Crow. Uh, and so she knew firsthand that struggle and knew its importance. She also uh, was friends with many of the women who ran these schools. And so you could think about uh, women like Mary McLeod Bethune, whose school in uh, Florida, uh, you know, she, she knew Mary McLeod Bethune through the National Association of Colored Women and other women's networks. Um, Charlotte Hawkins Brown had a school um, in North Carolina that she was supportive of. Uh, and so uh, she just relates to them very differently. So that, that gives us a different insight into the nature of this giving um, and, and an understanding of this the role of proximity and informing a donor's giving uh, and being able to rate, relate directly to the quest. And then the other thing that's important here is that it doesn't matter that from, from a standpoint of racism and sexism, it doesn't matter that Madam Walker eventually became a millionaire. It doesn't matter that she had two cars and several properties because at the end of the day, she could still be lynched, uh, raped, harassed, violated, just as any other Black person. And and that is something that also places this in a different context. And and so the the other white philanthropists of her era, and even you know may, may have had you know difficult childhoods, grew up in poverty, but they're rescued by that through their wealth, and that's sufficient, right? And then the privileges of race and 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 and, and sex, uh, you know, accrue to them in that process. Um, and so it, it's fundamentally different. And even when you look at her white female peers, um, they're still very much grappling with sexism, but they still get to benefit from race in ways that she never. Will so it, again. It, it's a fundamentally different context um, and and experience that informs this giving and drives its practice on a daily basis. How how do you feel this this particular area of research, your research? How do you feel that that has contributed on a larger scale to our understanding of of Black history? Yeah. Well, one, I think um, it, it helps us. There, there's two kind of big questions that I like to think about in terms of um, who counts as a philanthropist and what counts as philanthropy. And I think this question of definitions is very important because I think even in the public imagination, the notion of a philanthropist is very much a very wealthy person who's making very big gifts to to organizations. And um, there, you know, that obviously does exist, and it it should have attention whenever private resources are used for public good. We should you know, you know, there's there's thing, you know, there's reason to look after it and, and to monitor it and to be, you know, try to understand it. But that's not the only part of it. That um everyday people give in a variety of ways. Um, and, and that we don't often focus attention on the ways in which a neighbor might look after a neighbor, or even within a family, the ways in which people support each other. Uh, and part of that, I think, is driven by tax code. Uh, people might be driven by what is deductible uh, per their, their, their own government's uh, tax policy, which is very restricted. 
right? Because government needs to restrict that for its own purposes. Uh, but if we think about philanthropy that predates uh, uh, modern tax codes, then we open up ourselves to uh, a broader range of human practices for caring and looking after each other. So I think that's important. I think it's also help, important to understand that African Americans uh, have never been only the recipients of other people's philanthropy. That's a big way in which they are cast in the historiography. There's lots of, 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 of scholarship written about what white philanthropists are doing to and for Black communities. Um, but even in those stories, uh, it's not often the case that the agency of those recipients emerges. And so what I'm trying to do is showing, you know, those things are happening. Yes, Carnegie has given to Black schools and all the, you know, this, this, those things are happening too. But uh, there's this broader practice of giving that existed before then uh, and that existed as a part of that. Uh, yes, Rosenwald gave a lot of money to black schools, but those black communities had to raise most of the money before he would match it. His gifts were matching funds. Julius Rosenwald was one of the founders of Sears and Roebuck and was very much a big funder of, of black education in the United States uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I wanted to show that, you know, again, black people have these traditions of giving. Uh, they have never only been recipients, and it's important to understand what um, informs, motivates their giving and the various forms and shapes that it takes place. So again, we can better understand their experience because again, it, it hasn't been only about what others have done for them. It's about what they were doing for themselves. We can even view various forms of resistance as part of this, this struggle. Lots of scholars have looked at the resistance to slavery, the resistance in Jim Crow. Uh, part of that resistance is the creation of these organizations, the assertion of these, these philanthropic gifts to do something and provide for themselves in the midst of these larger political and social and economic oppression. And so uh, I think it broadens our view and understanding of philanthropy more generally, and it also expands our understanding of how giving actually has worked uh, in, within the Black experience. That was Dr. Tyrone Freeman. He's Associate Professor at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, IUPUI. Tyrone was speaking to the author, broadcaster and public historian, Helen Carr. He's one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize. That's the world's largest history prize, which recognises outstanding historical scholarship. 